to go to the Word today. We're in a series on the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, and we'll pull it up on the screen, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses uh, 4 through 5, and then we're going to read in Acts chapter 2. Uh, these are passages that we've covered, but I'm covering them thoroughly from different angles so that we can kind of lay a foundation on the nature of the Holy Spirit in the church. So let's read uh, Acts 1, 4 through 5, and then in uh, chapter 2. It says this, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in Acts chapter 2, reading from verse 38, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truth that we receive through it. We're grateful that it's inspired of the Holy Spirit, and through your word, we can receive the gift and the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, we ask for that today. We ask that you wake us up deeply inside, God, that your perfect purposes will be accomplished in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, now last week I talked uh, about holiness. I talked about the the truths of holiness in the scriptures, in particular, in relation to what it is to receive and walk in the Holy Spirit of God. And part of that message uh, was uh, a little bit the aspect of what we call, might call Pentecostal heritage. It's a good time to talk about heritage. It's, it's the 4th of July week. Um, but I'm talking about not our political nation, but I'm talking about the holy nation of the church. And I talked about the roots of the Pentecostal charismatic movement uh, last week and the, the nature of the holiness movements of the, uh, of the late 1800s and how that led into this tremendous outpouring and revival in the early 1900s. And I talked about some of the things that the holiness movement did right and some of the things that were what might be called excesses. And how we want to kind of hit that sweet spot uh, in the middle, if, if you want to put it that way, where we, where we focus on what is truly a biblical standard for holiness. And in a way, uh, I'm kind of continuing that today, not talking so much specifically about holiness, but talking about uh, this blessing of the Holy Spirit that was the mark of uh, Pentecostal charismatic movement and experience and still is today. Now, let me talk a little bit about how early Pentecostals uh, felt about this gift, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of miraculous gifts that goes with it. Uh, you may say, well, now why are we talking about them? Why aren't we talking about us today? Well, really I am talking about us, but there are some mindsets and different things that are, that are kind of held over. And just like with holiness, there's some things that uh, early Pentecostals got right, and there are some things that early Pentecostals, you might call, again, were sort of excesses. 
Now let me, let me talk about what they did right. It was a belief, and still is among certain movements, certain Christian denominations, if you want to put it that way, uh, that believed that um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are passed away. This is called cessationism. Cessationism. This is the belief that the gifts have ceased, right? That's why it's called cessationism. The idea that the gifts have, have passed away. They believe the Bible. These are Christians that believe the Bible, believe the book of Acts. Uh, but they believe that those gifts, including uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in other tongues, and other miraculous gifts, um, were just for what they call the apostolic era. That was the time for the apostles. That was a time that was kind of like a, a supercharged period for the founding of the church. But once the church was founded, and very importantly for some, once the Bible was completed, right, the, the books of the New Testament was written, they believe that those gifts were sign gifts, they were just a marker for the foundation of the church, and that they have passed away, right? That was, this is a belief that people had, and so they believed, by, and some of them went so far as to say, by definition, if anybody is manifesting those gifts, especially speaking in tongues, well, it's got to be false, even maybe of the devil. Some people actually have actually taught that. Now, here's the problem with that position. It's not in the Bible. That's the problem. Other than that, it sounds great, right? Uh, but it's not, it's just not in the Bible. It's a very logical sort of line by line, look, this is the way you see it. Oh, okay, we see it. Let me tell you an experience that I had. Get my keys out of my pocket here. Um, I graduated from a Baptist seminary. Matter of fact, twice. So I got my master's in theology there. I went to the mission field, did missionary work, came back, and I went back to the same seminary for my doctorate in New Testament. So I wasn't just focusing on some general thing. I was focusing specifically on the New Testament that deals with the New Covenant, that deals with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a great school, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. There are five main Southern Baptist seminaries throughout the country, but Southern Baptist in Louisville is considered the queen, the mother. It's the oldest of the seminaries. It's the first seminary in the United States to, to award a PhD. And, little known fact, the first superintendent of the Assemblies of God went to Southern Baptist Seminary. How many didn't know that? that. So I went to the same school that E.M. Bell, the first superintendent of the Assemblies of God, went to school. So I had a friend, um, he was a younger guy, um, and one day after a class, he came up to me and he said, Dave, uh, can we go out for lunch? I want to talk to you. And I said, uh, sure. So uh, he was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. That's where he got his master's degree. And now he was at Southern. And these guys that come out of Dallas are crackerjacks when it comes to the Greek. I'm telling you, they come out reading Greek like you read the funny papers. I mean, he was, this was a brilliant young man, dedicated to the Lord. And we sat down over pizza and he said, I have a problem. I said, what's your problem? 
He said, I came out of Dallas, and I know a lot of them did. A lot of his buddies were there, came out of Dallas Theological. And he said, they taught me two things. One, they taught me Greek. And I know how to break down the text, the original text of the New Testament in the original Greek. I know how to do the exegesis. I know how to parse it. I know how to crack that nut. And I know what the text is actually saying. I said, right, absolutely. He said, the other thing they taught me was cessationism. They taught me that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have passed away. I said, right, I know that too. He said, the problem is, the first skill they gave me is undermining the second teaching that they taught me. Because the more I look at the Greek, the more I understand there's nothing in the text to support the idea that the gifts of the Spirit have passed away. He said, I've got another problem. In so many words. I said, what's that? He said, you. He said, it's very clear you're not full of the devil. You're a sincere Christian, you love Jesus, and you're full of the Holy Spirit. So all this teaching... It's just it, just, it doesn't square. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, let me tell you about another conversation that happened 30 years ago um, about a problem between a Baptist and a Pentecostal. Um, I was at the General Council of the Assemblies of God in Indianapolis, Indiana, 30 years ago this summer, 1989. And I went to a conference. It was led by the director of missions of the Assemblies of God. And he told a story about how he was attending um, the convention of the Southern Baptist movement. Right? This is, this, that might seem strange to you that the head of the missions of the Assemblies of God would go to the Southern Baptist Convention, but if you understand on the mission field how much Baptist and Pentecostal missionaries actually work together to reach the lost, you'd understand it better. So it's one thing, in the United States, you've got, you know, little town in middle America, and you've got the Baptist church on this corner, and the Pentecostal church on this corner, and the people are all, and then they go in, oh, you know, leaning, leaning, you know, and then they, go their way this competition between churches on the mission field that's a different thing you're in the trenches and, and any Christian there especially from your own country you're working together so that's why he was at this conference and he's at the conference and he's sitting there and all of a sudden up walks his Baptist counterpart in other words the head of missions of the Southern Baptist Convention they're friends they knew each other and he walks up to him and he says brother I have a problem the Baptist says this to the Pentecostal. And he said, yes, I'm aware of your problem. Meaning, at the time, there was all this upheaval in the Southern Baptist Convention about inerrancy of scripture. It was dividing the seminaries, my own seminary, one of them. Uh, all this scandal and upheaval. And uh, so he said, yes, I know the whole inerrancy um, uh, controversy. And he said, no, that's, that's not my problem. He said, well, what's your problem? He said, my problem is over half the Southern Baptist missionaries on the field are baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. 
And his response was, brother, you do have a problem. <laughs> so the Pentecostals, the early Pentecostals, I talked last week about Agnes Osmond, January 1st, 1901, baptized in the Holy Spirit, convinced that speaking in tongues had not passed away after a deep study in the book of Acts, convinced it was for today. Charles Parham lays hands on her. She gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, starts speaking in tongues, and that, it just begins to rip. It just begins to move, and it becomes a worldwide movement that continues to this day. They got that right. Pentecostals got that right. Now let me tell you some things that were excesses. Some Pentecostal movements, denominations, uh, came to the conclusion that unless you spoke in tongues, you weren't a Christian. That is not in the Bible. That is not in the Bible. But they became so ingrown and so what I would call sectarian, they became so, so fierce about waving their own little flag of their own little group that they, they said, unless you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you can't be assured of salvation. Listen, listen. I'm older than a lot. I'm younger than others. But I've been around. And I'm going to tell you, I've learned something in the last 40 years that I've been a Christian. The second we step out from under the umbrella of biblical truth, we pay a price. There's a saying in Spanish that I learned in language school, and that was, más papista que el papa. Más papista que el papa means more papist than the pope. Don't be more papist than the pope. Don't be, my dad used to call it, gilding the lily. Don't be so zealous that you go beyond what is written in scripture. You following? That's something that, that, that's a truth that must be grasped. So it's the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are true. They're real. They're for today. They're for everybody. But don't go so far as to say, and if you don't have it, you don't belong to the Lord Jesus like I do. That's, that's wrong. That's just wrong. Another teaching that came out, and these, these are connected, and this goes back to the holiness thing, is speaking in tongues is the ultimate sign of sanctification. This comes out of the Wesleyan tradition. This comes out of the teaching of John Wesley Methodism. Methodism, the very idea of Methodism, was John Wesley developed a method by which you could reach sanctification, step by step by step in your life, until you are actually sanctified, in quotes, capital S, you're without sin, in this life. And people were, look, these holiness people I talked about last week, were looking for a sign. Is there a sign? Is there a marker? Is there something that happens in me where, where God plants his flag and says, it's soup, you're done. You're, you've reached sanctification. They were looking for that. It's kind of like King Arthur in the quest for the Holy Grail. Are we ever going to find it? I'm going to tell you, yes, we're going to find it. When we see Jesus face to face, that's where we're gonna, when we're going to find it. But until that time, 
No. So I believe in, in, in sanctification. I believe in the holiness movement. But that's an excess that was in the holiness movement that splashed over into Pentecost. And people thought that once I speak in tongues, then I'm sanctified, capital S. I'm done. Now, here's the problem with that. That's also not in the Bible. That's just not in the Bible. And we've seen over the top, and if you haven't seen it, and you speak in tongues, go look in the mirror and you'll see it. People who speak in tongues who still sin. <sighs> Say it isn't so. I remember my pastor in Kentucky saying this. He goes, no, people, people, this is an adjustment. He, and he, I'm telling you, he believed in laying hands on people, seeing them filled with the Holy Spirit, seeing the gifts of the Holy Spirit manifesting in prophecy, healings, tremendous gifts, manifestations, and everything else. But here's the problem. He said, it's a problem when you say, well, speaking in tongues is the gift, is, is the sign of sanctification, having the Holy Spirit, and you got a bunch of Pentecostals who are mean as snakes. They're just mean. I mean, I wish speaking in tongues got the mean out of people. But sometimes you can speak in tongues and still be mean. How many... How many still love me? I'll pray for the half that don't. <laughs> or you can pray for me. So you, you've, got this, you've got this issue where people think that speaking in tongues somehow means you've arrived, means you've been sanctified, means that, or that's this, even the sign of being a Christian at all. A third thing that they got wrong, and this is easily corrected, it's not easy to have it impact you I can say this as a missionary but a lot of Pentecostals said this is it with this we're going to evangelize the world we're going to be able to just go get on a boat you know sail over to Korea get off the boat and we'll just speak it be speaking in Korean we'll just speak in tongues we don't have to learn language and they found out the hard way that isn't true that isn't true now, in a weird way, they were right, because the Pentecostal charismatic outpouring led to a boom in evangelism and a boom in missions. And the nations have, in fact, through the manifestation of God's power to witness, that is in the Bible, led to this tremendous growth in missions. The 20th century has been a growth in missions and into the 21st century that has simply exploded. That's a tremendous, powerful gift. But the idea that I don't need to learn another language, I spent a year in language school, and I can guarantee you, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit before I went to language school. I spoke in other tongues before I went to language school, but speaking in Spanish is a different thing entirely. There are cases, there have been cases, miraculous sign cases, where somebody with it, I shared some of those last week, where somebody, uh, there's a famous story of T.L. Osborne. How many have heard of T.L. Osborne? One of the great missionary greats of the, of the 20th century. Actually, at one point, that man actually laid hands on me, gave me a word from God. He was a tremendous, powerful man of God. But T.L. Osborne would do, um, he was what we call a missionary evangelist. He never, he didn't learn the languages of the countries he'd go into. He'd do these great crusades, and he'd go from country to country, and and he didn't, he didn't stop and live in that country like I did with my family in Ecuador. He, he, he would go from place to place in crowds, tens of thousands of people. And he would use, use an interpreter. And, at one, and sometimes you have to hire interpreters. And he had to hire an interpreter. He wasn't even a Christian. 
And at one point, he gets up to preach, and the guy had, I think, done a service or two for him. And finally, the guy just said, I've had enough of this. I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus, and stalked off the stage. And so here, <laughs> here's T.L. Osborne looking at 100,000 people, and he doesn't speak the language. And he said, Jesus, give it to me. And he opened his mouth, and he preached a whole sermon in their language. Uh, people got saved, healings and everything else. Now that's, that's a tremendous miracle and sign, but that's the exception and not the rule. Okay, that's the exception and not the rule. So th these are areas. Now, what I want to talk about today and focus in on after that kind of a preamble there is um, the biblical understanding of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the, the true biblical understanding. And to get that, you have to kind of do what I did. This is what it is, and this is what it is not. Is everybody tracking with me on that? What it is, what it is not. And kind of clear away some preconceptions that are floating around out there, and also so that you understand me and where I'm coming from on this. So we're not kind of dodging each other on this, because this is important stuff to talk about, and this is more of kind of a teaching time, more of a teaching time and less of maybe a preaching time. Now, there are, there are two great truths tracking here uh, that we're going to kind of touch on and come from both sides of kind of a pincher movement to kind of, kind of get this truth uh, from the biblical stance. Um, first of all, the passages that we read. Um, Jesus calls the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. Uh, and then Peter, uh, when he's uh, responding to the people's reaction to his sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, what should we do? That's verse 37. They're cut, cut to the heart. What should we do? And he responds, and he tells them, repent, be baptized, and so forth, forgiveness of sins. I talked about that last week. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everybody say gift. It's a gift. And then he repeats what Jesus says. He uses that word, promise. The promise is for you. The promise is for you. So this is the first great truth that I want you to lay hold of with all your heart. And that is the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the power, the gifts, the freedom, the joy that goes, the whole thing, is God's idea. It's God-initiated. It's the promise of the Father. It's a gift from Him. Okay, this is a very important truth for you to lay hold of. I can remember talking about a different gift. I can remember when I was 19 years old, been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I was agonizing over the call to ministry. Not because I... I didn't want it, not because I was being a Jonah. Different times I've been a Jonah. This time I wasn't being a Jonah. This time I wanted it. I wanted to be used of God. I was desperate. I was hungry. I was full of the fire of my youth and the Holy Spirit. And I, God, I want to be used. God, you're calling these other people in ministry. Why won't you call me, I, I want you to be, I want, I want to be used of God. I would lose sleep over it. I would weep in the altar. I would seek God. What I didn't recognize was that 
was the call, right? That was the call. If you desire God, any look, any desire that you have for something of God, a desire to be used of him, a desire uh, to flow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not for your own glory, but you, you desire to be used for his glory and see people set free and you want to lead people to Jesus, you want, that's from God. You don't need to plead with him for him to give you what he has established that you would have from the foundation of the earth. It's his idea. You're not good enough in your, na in your nature left to yourself. You're not virtuous enough to want that on your own. Hope nobody's insulted by that, but no, but none of us are. Jesus said, no man comes to, the, comes to me unless the Father draws him. That's God initiated. His Holy Spirit draws you. That's God initiating it. That's God's redemptive work in your life. And then you have cases like John the Baptist, who, whom the angel Gabriel, Gabriel said uh, to Zachariah, his father, he says he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Well, I mean, that's pretty clearly God's initiating, initiating that one, right? It wasn't like here's this... There's this baby in his mama's womb saying, I'm going to fast and pray for 40 days here. You know, I'm going to pinch the umbilical cord and fast. You know, I mean, come on. It's like this, is, this whole thing is God's idea. And so this is the truth that we need to lay hold of. This is the understanding that we need to have. That when somebody comes to Jesus, I'll even go a step before that. When somebody is in the process of coming to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is upon them. The Holy Spirit is upon them. And when they say yes to Jesus, they're saying yes to Jesus through a gift of faith and grace that's given by the Holy Spirit. And when they're born again, they're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if somebody is sincerely naming Jesus as Savior, it means they have the Holy Spirit. Is everybody following me on that? All right. Those are truths. And from those truths, you get some people over again, talking like I did at the beginning, in this cessationist camp who say there's, there's all these evidences in Scripture that we have the Holy Spirit upon confessing Jesus and being baptized in water. We have the Holy Spirit. That's it. That, that's, that's all there is. And, th and then therefore, receiving the Holy Spirit is sort of automatic. Now, before I, I get into this other great truth I want to talk about, I want to say this, and this can apply to Pentecostals as much as it can apply to movements that don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. This is, this is important. When the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit becomes to you nothing but a doctrinal truth, Like a box that you check. I believe um, in the Holy Scriptures. I believe they're inspired. Uh, check. Uh, I believe uh, in, the, in the Trinitarian Godhead. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Check, check, check. I believe in the fallenness of humanity. Check. 
We call this in the Assemblies of God the 16 fundamental truths. Different movements have it framed different ways, but these are just doctrines that we check out. I believe that. Oh, good, okay, you can be a member of the church because you've checked all the boxes. There is a place for those type of declarations, but I want to tell you, if you want the power of the Holy Spirit flowing in your life, you got to go beyond checking a box. It's got to be a reality in you. And this is why I've seen it over and over again. I've seen it as a missionary. I've seen it, I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen it as a professor praying for students in my office. I've seen it um, when I was doing campus ministry. You start to talk about the baptism, even for people that want it, even people who are hungry for it. I've seen people literally tremble. Their flesh trembles. Their voice is trembling. They're, they're, there's a nervousness. Why? Because it's one thing to talk about God in principle. It's another thing when God Almighty shows up and touches your mortal flesh. That's something in, uh, else entirely. Because our mortal flesh begins to tremble and come apart at the touch and the presence of the Holy Spirit. My sister, my older sister, she was at Notre Dame before I was. I think I've told the story before. She went to a prayer meeting, and a couple of charismatic nuns laid hands on her. Got to be careful of those charismatic nuns, man. They got lightning in their fingers. They laid hands on her. She collapsed, and she wept probably for 10 or 15 minutes. She just wept and wept and wept. I've seen that many times. Not, not every time. It's never, everybody's different. But she just wept. Her, her, something came apart in, inside of her. Something melted. Something broke inside of her. Later, she began to speak in other tongues. But there was this power that came upon her. This is something, this is something that, that you, hey, I'll say it, even if you already speak in tongues, this is something that we as a church, God desires of us and for us. He desires for us to cross a line where this is not just a doctrinal declaration where people look on our website and go, oh, this is okay. oh yeah, they believe in that. Okay, good. Or not good. It's not just about some doctrine that we say that we believe in our head. This is about drawing close to God, and this is the difference between miracles and being Pentecostal in name only. God save us from being Pentecostal in name only. We want God's outpouring, and we want his presence. And this leads to this, this second truth, and I want you to look over in Acts chapter 19. This is the subtlety to this truth. We understand, we, we've just covered, hey, if you believe on Jesus, you've got the Holy Spirit. You couldn't have believed on him without the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in you. It's a gift. It's a promise. It's what he does. You don't have the virtue. You don't. Who would have thought this one up? This is God's idea. Lock, stock, and barrel. It's God's idea. It's God's initiative. It's God's gift. It's God's promise. It's God's doing. That's all true. But I want you to read with me Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. This is a story, but a truth comes out through this story. <clears throat> it says this, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. This is in, in the area that we would call western Turkey today. 
there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now here's the situation. Paul arrives in Ephesus, not been in the city before, and there's already what we would call a nucleus of disciples there. Paul himself, we understand from the scriptures, Paul himself did not understand the full nature of this fellowship, of this sort of uh, nascent fellowship, this very beginning baby, baby fellowship of believers. He didn't understand the nature of that. And he asked them a question assuming that they've been baptized in the name of Jesus. That's very important for you to understand. Because later in the passage, he goes, wait, okay, how could you not know that there's a Holy Spirit if you've been baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? So when they say, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, bing, 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 that's a note to him. Hey, there's some, something's, something's awry here. That's why he says, well, what baptism were you baptized into? Well, John's baptism. Oh, okay, now I get it. But up until that point, Paul was under the impression that they were Christians. Is everybody tracking with me? They, they were Christians. They had been baptized in the name of Jesus. But here's the thing. Assuming that they were baptized into the name of Jesus, he asked them a question. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, if you were to ask that question... In the Baptist seminary that I went to, if I were to go and ask this exam, exa same, same question without any reference to the passage of Scripture, without, any, without leading on that, that, I'm, that I'm quoting the words of Paul, if I were to ask one of my classmates who is a minister and they're getting their doctorate in New Testament, and I would ask them, uh, so when did, you, uh, when did you come to Jesus? Oh, I was 14 years old. It was a youth camp or whatever. And then I say to them, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They'd look at me. They'd say, of course I received the Holy Spirit when I believed. I received the Holy Spirit when I believed because there's no way to believe without the Holy Spirit. Are you following me? So they would answer that way. Do you, does anybody here really think that Paul was ignorant that you can't come to Jesus without the Holy Spirit? Does anybody believe that the Apostle Paul was ignorant about really anything regarding the Holy Spirit? Paul clearly is asking in another sense. Are you following me? He's clearly understanding that believers, because they're believers, have the Holy Spirit to one degree. But in another sense entirely, it's a legitimate and necessary question to ask. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because what follows in the passage tells the rest of the story. Once they're baptized in the name of Jesus, then he lays hands on them. If baptism in the name of Jesus is enough, 
Why didn't he just stop there? But it's not enough. He lays hands on them, and what happens? They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they speak in other tongues, and they prophesy. This is what we call the second blessing. The second blessing. Now, the phrase, second blessing, is not found in the Scriptures. But the truth behind it certainly is. Just like the word Trinity isn't found in the Scriptures, but the truth behind the Trinity is there. In the same way, we have to understand this. It's biblical. It's over and over, and I'll cover more of it next week. But it's over and over again. This is a fundamental truth. Now, let me, let me, let me, let me pray. I pray for a lot of people to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I've become convinced that the number one issue for people being impeded in receiving the flow and the power of these gifts and the number one issue why other Christians don't lay hands on people for them to receive is teaching. This is confusing to people. They're confused because we're not submitted to the biblical mindset. In the biblical world, in the book of Acts, this happens over and over and over again to where people come to Jesus and that means the Holy Spirit's with them. That means they've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. It means they've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. They've repented by the power of the Holy Spirit and they're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one level of receiving the Holy Spirit. But being clothed with power from on high is a horse of a different color. It's another thing. It's another thing entirely. That is something that we have to get deep inside of us. God is not playing games. He's not playing keep away. And the the power of the Holy Spirit clothing you from on high is every bit his idea is getting you saved in the first place. It's the same Jesus. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same blessing. It just goes to a different level. Put it simply, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit is given to you to fill you and to renovate you for, unto your salvation. But when you're clothed with power from on high, you're given power to witness to other people for their salvation. Now, anybody can tell anecdotes, but I'm telling you, this is personal experience for me, and it burns inside of me. When I got saved, and I went off to, and, I mean, first I was in high school, and then I was in college. It was everything that I could do to keep myself afloat in Jesus. I was praying, I was reading the Bible, I was going to Bible studies. But I'm just going to be blunt. I wasn't being very successful at leading people to Jesus. When I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, things changed. Things changed. I had power and to spare. I had, I had the power that I needed to overcome the rejection and the conflict that naturally comes when you try to lead people to Jesus. Because you're not going to bat a thousand, man. Even Jesus didn't bat a thousand. So for the kind of power that you need to touch other people's lives and to reach into their lives, you're going to need something different. Jesus said, don't, 
don't leave home without it. It's a very, very powerful thing. Now, let me, let me close with this passage. This is Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read from verse 9. Famous passage about asking. It says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, here we are with fathers and gifts again, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more would the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is talking to his disciples. Before I, 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 I start exhorting based on that, class, that passage, I want to ask a question here. If receiving the Holy Spirit is automatic, why does Jesus teach his disciples to ask for him? following me this is something that our modern minds have difficulty grasping because for us it's one or the other either it's God initiated and he gives it it's his idea it's his grace it's his gift it's his promise and he just does it and we just lay back in a passive mode and say lay it on me and I get it just because I named Jesus and I'm baptized in the name of Jesus. And it's, it's all that way. Or it's something that I hunger for and I ask for and that, and, that, and that God gives that way. It's either or. And what I'm trying to tell you is the biblical model is both and. It is God's gift. It is God's idea. It is God initiated. It is his promise. You still ask for him. You ask for him. This, folks, is about what we call posture. Remember when you're a little kid, your mom says, sit up straight. Now get, get your posture right. What I'm talking about posture here is I'm talking about your position in relationship to God. Right? morning I took a shower how many are glad I did now if I go into the bathroom I turn on the shower get the shower head going there's oh, water's warm but I stand outside the shower who's to blame for me not getting clean. I mean, I could stand there and say, oh, God. Why does this always happen to me? I mean, there's all this water, and I'm not getting wet, and come on, Lord. 
That's a simplification. There are some issues that are more complicated, but on this, I'm going to tell you. you got to get under the flow. Last week, talking about holiness was about posture. We posture ourselves by holiness, by giving ourselves over, by having God's nature be important to us, by revering his nature, by saying, God, I honor you, I respect you, I glorify you. You are holy. You are other. You are exalted. I am not holy. I repent, and I ask you to cleanse me. I ask you to sanctify me. I ask you to work these things in me. When you move through repentance toward holiness, you're stepping onto the shower. But in the same way, asking is very, very important. We, by asking, we orient our inner being toward receiving. We stir up hunger inside of us. We stir up expectation. We fix our eyes. I've prayed for people. I've, I've been in all, I've prayed for people in all sorts of contexts to receive the Holy Spirit. Pray for people. If you want to receive the Holy Spirit, come forward. I, people in a line. This person right here is standing there. Their head's bowed. Their hands are trembling. There's tears running down their face. Their face is flushed. They're, they're oh, God, I want to be. And you get another person standing there. You think I'm exaggerating. I'm being kind. I want to tell you, God doesn't fill cold cups. He just doesn't. It's not, it's not that God's mad. It's that he can't. Today, I want to ask uh, Pastor Joseph if he'd come forward, the other musicians. And I, 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 want us to, I want us to pray. I just feel that today is a day of positioning ourselves. Now, you might say, I already uh, have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I already speak in tongues. You hear the song we sang earlier? I want more of you, God. As a church, we want to move our inner metric, we want to move that inner meter toward red hot for Jesus. We want to get, this doesn't have anything to do with age, doesn't have anything to do with background, culture, doesn't have anything to do with any of that. It has to do with flat out where you are in relationship to God. What do you want? I want us to begin to call on Jesus right now. Would you just bow your heads right now where you are? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. Father, right now, as a church and as a people, God, we draw near to you. We draw near to you, God. God, we're asking for the second blessing all over again. 
we're asking for individuals. And we're asking as a church, God, that in our midst you would pour out your Holy Spirit. God, we ask, Lord, that from the basics of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, conviction of sin, that sinners would be saved. God, that cold hearts would be set aflame. God, that our private lives with all the skeletons in our closets and all our secret sins. Jesus, that you would lance that boil and that the power of the Holy Spirit would come in God, we want to want you. And we need your grace. Jesus, we ask, I want you to right now, where you are, I want you to begin to ask for the Holy Spirit. I want you to begin to ask for him in your life. If you already have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you speak in other tongues, I want you to ask for more. I want you to ask that the King of Kings sit enthroned over your life and that he do what needs to be done in you. That the Holy Spirit would flow like a river through you. If you have not received the release of this gift, I want you to ask him. Jesus, Jesus, fill me. Ask for the Holy Spirit. He won't turn you away. All who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. In no way will he cast you out. He will always answer this prayer. Jesus, we ask for the Holy Spirit. Just as you taught us, Lord, you taught us to ask you for the Holy Spirit of God. We ask you. We ask you. We don't take it for granted. We know that that gift is your idea. We know that you're the one who made the promise. But Father, we're asking right now. We're asking for an increase. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. You know, I just feel led right now. Would you place your right hand on your heart? Place your right hand on your heart. And I want everybody to pray this prayer after me out loud, good and strong. Pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I repent. I ask you to come into my life afresh and anew and be my Lord. I surrender my will to you. I want everything that you have for me. Cleanse me. Break every chain off of me. Fill me with your power and your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Jesus. 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 I want us just to wait.
just wait in God's presence.